The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansberry, your host. We're in for a delightful treat, as we were a few weeks back with who I'm getting ready to introduce you to. Before that, though, I want to mention to you about rating and reviewing. We need that done so we can keep moving forward with all the activities we have for 2024 as well. So please rate and review. Go to the show notes. We'd really like to hear from you. Tell us about what we're doing great. Nothing else, of course. No, <laughs> great or whatever. Had <laughs> to help us along the way and give us some input. It really helps. And we have a book out in 2012 called America Needs America's Energy, Creating Together the People's Energy Plan. And we have a monograph that came out 2022. And that one is called America Needs America's Energy and Its Natural Resources. And hopefully go to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, pick up a copy. Let me know what you think about that as well. And then as far as a column, I have a column in Old Man Magazine going on 10 years. Please get your copy of the magazine as well. And we really appreciate that. Energy's Magazine, Old Woman Magazine, or magazines that are published via the publisher of Old Man Magazine and those two other magazines as well. And that's Emmanuel Sullivan. And then we have a documentary that we've had a great support from the listeners and really appreciate each one of you called Sherwood Force Top Secret. We hope you'll go to the affiliates of the stations there and pick up your copy, at least a copy via internet and PBS as well, pbs.org and so forth. So anyway, I want to introduce our guest. That's where we're leading to. And it's important that we have back this gentleman who's an energy media expert of many years. I met him via Midland, Texas for an article many years ago. And thanks to that, we've kept in touch off and on, but especially as of late, Paul Wiseman. Paul, welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's very much a pleasure to be here. The audience, I hope, had an opportunity to listen to Paul a few weeks ago, did an outstanding job. And so definitely look at that or listen to that episode because it tells about Paul's background as well, his bio, where he started and what he's done throughout the years. And he's Definitely done so much for our energy industry, especially the oil and gas industry. And thank you for your years of service, Paul. We really appreciate all you've done. It's been a pleasure. This is a great group of people to work with up and down the line. And I'm glad to be part of what you're doing as well, because I think you're doing some really important work as well. Yes, I appreciate you so much and all the leadership that you've had through the years and we thank you for that. I'd like to get started. There's several subjects, I mean, that we could get involved with. I know that there's some that you've written about and are very closely looking and monitoring, I should say. And that's enhanced oil recovery and water recycling and some other things. Let's just get started. I'd like to hear from you as in regard to what your findings are and relate those to our listeners, please. Well, sure. Well, as both those are really hot topics right now. I think as it's getting 
harder to find really good prospects to drill. I've been told that the low-hanging fruit, as you might say, has been picked as far, especially in, in the shale formations in the Permian Basin and the Bakken and some other places. And so I, I keep reading and, and I've done some writing as well on that completions are being done differently. The laterals, laterals on new wells are going further than uh, like two miles and the distances like that in order to reach more of the formation. And then coming back to enhanced oil recovery, if I think everybody's familiar with the fact that the shale wells, the tight formations in particular, leave way more oil, up to 90% of their oil behind because the formations are tight. They don't communicate with each other. A water flood in general is not really generally possible, although I understand that some of them have not had some limited success with it. So going back in with some new ways to loosen that oil is a hot topic of research, both in the public sector in the universities, particularly in Texas and in Oklahoma, where most of the active oil is, and even to some extent in Colorado, looking for new ways to get at what's already been drilled. There are some companies, there are companies are doing things with things like injecting propane. We've done, we've seen the CO2 and water, of course, being done a lot. CO2 being an oil product, there some companies are having some success with that. Microbes that would go in and loosen some of the oil, release it from the rock in formations, and some other things like salinity, whether the water is preferably water wet or oil wet, and that varies from formation to formation, things like that. And we're seeing some success with that. One of the things I have run across, actually this was new to me until recently, in the shale formations, because you can't, the wells don't communicate, you can't pump water into one well and have it come out of another as you do with traditional water flood. They're doing something called huff and puff. Have you heard of that, Mark? Yes, but tell me more. I want to hear more about that. Okay, well, and this is one thing that's just across the board. A lot of universities are looking at this. They will pump a fluid into, you have to do this one well at a time, but the results have been that I've seen have been like a 30 to 40% increases in, in production. They'll pump a designed fluid, and there are several different designs, into a hole and leave it there pressurized for a period of time. It's usually a, a few days. And then they will release that, but then they'll let, in some cases, let the well sit there for, I believe, like 30 days and let that kind of digest. And then they start to producing it again. While this is one well at a time, there's not another option pretty much for the tight oil formations. And if it has the early results from what I've seen, it pays for itself within a few months. The process, some of it's still early in in the testing phase, so how long it'll last, how many times they have to redo that will be of interest. But before, there wasn't any other thing you could do than to shut a well in. Even though this is a little bit more trouble than a water flood, a traditional water flood, it's still, I think we're seeing some good results. Well, that's wonderful news. We've come a long way, haven't we, Paul? <laughs> I remember <laughs> we talked about that in the last episode we had together back a few weeks ago, and it's amazing. We, you know, I'd personally didn't have access to a fax machine to begin with, much less we didn't have iPhones and we didn't have the communication we have today. And the technology that you're talking about has, oh my goodness, just in the last, not even, you know, I've been in business 46 years 
and just in the last two or three years, there's been significant changes in the last five years for sure. And it's just getting crazy in that regard. I mean, in a good way, I would hope. <laughs> Generally, when I talk about AI, I don't know where that's heading, but we have AI and robotics. I mean, who would have thought we'd have robotics used so much? And then the oil recovery is such a big, important part because you're right. Again, what are the percentages as far as recruitment that are potential or at least still need to be recovered? What are those kind of those statistics that you've you know? From what I've seen, it, it varies, and this may vary from formation to formation, but I've seen as much the first time through as high as 95% of the oil is left down there. And even in a conventional formation, there's a whole lot left. When I first moved to Midland in the 70s, they were saying that there was about 20 years of oil left. But what that meant was they knew there was more down there. They just couldn't get at it then. Well, you know, here we are. You know, 20 years after that 20 years, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we're producing more than ever. So it all had to do with technology. We didn't have the artificial intelligence you're talking about is being used to process mounds of information. As little as five years ago, when we first started really, the industry started doing monitoring, remote monitoring of wells and gathering that data, people were telling me they didn't know what to do with all that data at that point. Uh, I would say, what are you going to do with it? And they go, that's a good question. Well, five years later, we still don't know everything to do with it, but the artificial intelligence is allowing people to process, you know, millions, not people, but to have processed right. millions of bits of information per second and send reports out that, you know, a team of accountants could never have put together our engineers in weeks before. Well, I remember back when I was in the Enrico Basin, working back in the 70s and 80s, you had a success ratio of one out of 10, you're doing pretty well, you know, as far as drilling well and a successful well. Now you don't see, you know, the statistics are really in favor of you having success. It's so scientific compared to where it was when we were trying to explore and the challenges and the high pressure volumes we had in the basin. I mean, my goodness, it was amazing that we had the success we did. And from about 1969, I remember in Elk City, Oklahoma, south of Elk City, was a well that was drilled by GHK, and it came in around 24,000 feet or so, which was a very deep gas well. Yes. It was successful, commercially successful, and kind of helped launch in my hometown of Elk City, became the natural gas capital of the world for a while. At least that's the decals I helped put out when I was around 13 years old all over town. <laughs> so I vividly remember that. Didn't know much about oil or natural gas, but I was putting those decals all over to promote our energy arena and what we had to offer, at least in Washington, Oklahoma. And we've seen this technology advance. It's amazing. Like you say, if we can go in and you know, you take 5 or 10% is a lot of, if we can recover you know, one percent at a time, it's amazing what can be done across the board. So it's very challenging. We've seen from, I remember, 2D seismic to 3D and so forth. I mean, we've come a long way, and you've reported this a long way, which is great. You have such a history of knowledge, and I'm glad you're still sharing this knowledge because there are those that are just getting into business that have no idea, you know, unless they have Paul Wiseman helping them <laughs> to know about these kind of things. So, well, there's I, a lot appreciate- of other sources for that too, but yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, but you put it in, it's one thing to buy a book of 500 pages and you have a way of condensing it and making it concise to five pages so we can have at least a view, <laughs> a view, a view of it. That's very important this day and time because knowledge anymore is in, you know, bites. It's not in this small brief segment sometimes because I don't have time. I, don't, I know you do. 
because of the advancement of technology, iPhones and emails and everything, websites, because of all this, we get our news within, you know, a few 30 seconds and a minute, those type of things. Then we have to make sure we have reliable sources like Paul to go to, to say, is this right? What would I hear in it? Because we're not going to get all the facts right if we're just listening to 30 seconds to a minute at a time. And so that's when I pick up an article and I appreciate a recent article that you had got to be interviewed in. It really means a lot that you reach out to folks and get firsthand knowledge from folks of what they are seeing as well. And that was in Permian Oil and Gas Magazine. I know you have some other writings as well. Can you tell us about that a little bit before we go on and talk a little bit more about enhanced oil recovery? Sure. Well, yeah, I do a couple of articles a month for the Permian Basin Oil and Gas Magazine. That goes out to members of the PBPA. And so I've been doing that off and on for almost 10 years now, I think. So that's a great source of getting to talk to people that work specifically in the Permian and find out more in depth what's going on there. And about a year ago, I started doing one or sometimes more monthly articles for Heart Energy. Mm -hmm. That's a national publication. So that's one of the things that I say that I like about what I do is I talk to engineers that are, have developed a new thing, and I translate what they tell me into English. Right. So uh, <laughs> That's right. They get excited about the tiny things, and they need to. Somebody has to. But then for general knowledge, like you're talking about, for the front office people, we can kind of talk about more what it accomplishes, and that's what I like to see. And also, there's an industry think tank in Houston called Industrial Information Resources, IIR, and I do some writing for them as well. I've started about a year and a half ago writing for them. I, for there, I've expanded a little bit. We're doing some things on some of the more renewable energy types. We talked a little bit about that the last time, about the hydrogen and solar. And I think those things in some ways have their place. I certainly do not think that they're going to replace or even equal oil and gas for a long time. And most of those rely on oil and gas, the plastics. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and the heat needed to make those things. So that's one of the things I try to do is, you know, you read so many things where people are crazy, like, oh, we're going to all go to wind energy. Well, there's not enough land in the United States, I don't think, to put enough wind turbines up, especially considering the intermittency. But so I try to bring a balance to that. What are what Because any kind of energy, including oil and gas, has challenges. So what are those challenges and how are people overcoming them and are they insurmountable? And things like that. So one of the things I enjoy about what I do is I get to stay on top of what's happening. No question. I know energy transition is definitely words that we hear quite a bit from and about. And that energy transition is ongoing. We were talking about energy transition 10, 20 years ago. And so I got a feeling we're going to continue to talk about energy transition long past my lifetime as well, because it's going to be ongoing. And to embrace and the knowledge of which way is the best way to go is important too. That's why your articles are so important now because we're all trying to relate to where we are now and where we're going to be. And for children, grandchildren, future generations, because they're depending on us to make the right decisions. So I think it's important that we get more knowledgeable. And so back to enhanced oil recovery, what else do you have that you want to share in that regard? Well, I think that the only other real thing that I have to say about that is that it is less expensive than drilling a new well. And so even if you can just double the amount of oil you get out, then you have released the equivalent amount of drilling a new well with, you know, less, I don't know what the percentages are, but 10th or less of the cost. 
So in as all companies, I think one of the reasons all companies are looking at that also is the new climate of return on investment. The larger ones are sending more capital back to their stockholders and uh, private equity firms and things like that. The, the drill and flip scenario that we had back in the you know 2010 to 2020, I think that one is dead. Right, right. <laughs> the current article I have in the PBOG magazine, I use the phrase that it was sort of a Chip and Joanna Gaines a fixer-upper <laughs> scenario. And you found out in a fixer-upper, you can make money on that in a house. We found out we really couldn't make money on that in the oil patch. Right, right. No question. No question. So, well, another issue is, is water resources. It's very important. In fact, I had a conference I held for over 20 years called the International Energy Policy Conference. And we had one year which we just talked about water resources. And it was before us in a big way. And I thought, well, why not address it? And this was before it was really being talked about in the way it is today. But water recycling came to the forefront over the last several years in a big way. Can you tell us about water recycling, some of the developments and things that are heading to the oil and gas industry? Sure. The main thing that's pushing it right now is seismicity. There are three regions in the Permian Basin that have been kind of cordoned off by the Texas Railroad Commission as needing some as extra looks at them and studies in the, both the industry and the University of Texas, their Bureau of Economic Geology have studied these kind of things they're working on. In fact, they have just in a year or so of time, a couple of years in some cases, they've reduced seismicity in those areas already. But so the best thing to do is not put produced water in the ground in the first place because in most of the oil regions in Colorado and in North Dakota and some areas of Oklahoma and in Texas, it's dry. If that water could be used for something else, then it would relieve pressure on the freshwater table and it just checks a whole lot of boxes. <laughs> so those are the things that are driving that. It would be less expensive. The cost of treating water, even for fracking, has come way down in the last 10 years ago. When I was writing about it, it was like, yeah, the companies that were doing that, they'd say, yeah, we have to tell people this is the right thing to do because it is going to be more expensive than getting fresh water out of the ground. Now that's no longer the case. So as with any kind of technology, the first microwave ovens, only rich people <laughs> right. could afford to have one. And now everybody's got them up and down. But if you don't have one, it's, <laughs> it's an odd thing. So, so first of all, they started using it for fracking. And then they're looking at using it for other kinds of industrial use. And then eventually some early trials have been in use for some kind of agricultural use. Right now it's for non-edible, like things like cotton or textiles, that kind of thing. But even that is a huge, especially in West Texas, wow, there's <laughs> a lot of people irrigating cotton between Lubbock and Midland. That's right. And north of there. So there's a lot of boxes that get checked. So I think that's the driving force. I know that Chevron and some of the other, there's a story that will come out in the PBOG magazine in October that I'm doing for that. And I've talked to them. I won't give away any details more than that. But a lot of the majors, including them, are working on alternate uses for it. And there's independent companies as well that are looking at other uses for it. That's wonderful. Well, yeah, water resources and recycling and the uses are going to be something that's going to continue to be at the forefront. And thank you for, again, informing us about that. And we'll be looking forward to articles 
that you come up with along the way. Well, you know, one thing that came to mind also, another benefit of it is in the ESG range is if that water goes on to plants and plants grow, what do they do? They absorb carbon dioxide. And so <laughs> there's another box I forgot to say that gets checked. Right, right. Very good, very good. So oil workers, let's go to oil workers. Oil workers are facing some challenges when it comes to high tech, maybe good or bad, but it seems like there's some good opportunities, great opportunities ahead for oil workers in that regard. Can you tell us about what you're seeing from the workforce? Well, I'd heard a little bit about this before, but it came to mind because just today I saw a story about this, about how, especially in Bitcoin mining, which there's a lot of that going on in the Permian Basin, as people use the produced gas to make electricity to do that because it takes a huge amount of electricity, which seems, I guess, to the uninitiated, like I tend to be on that one, that you use that much electricity running computers. It seems odd to me, but that seems to be the case. And so they're using produced gas that would otherwise be flared to do that. And so that now they're recruiting, I understand, oil-filled workers because a lot of the skills, if you have oil-filled technology skills, then that translates to computers are used in every kind of industry. But the challenge that is, for, of course, everybody is shorthanded these days from you know, fast food on up to uh, the highest levels. And so now there's co- more competition between people that are the oil companies and the technology companies. Because as you and I know, Mark, we've been around a couple of years at this. There's some times <laughs> that you can't get a job <laughs> That's right. in oil and gas. And there are people, every time there's a downturn, there's oh my goodness. a certain percentage of people that say, I'm not going back. I'm going to, if nothing else, I'll become a plumber or something. That's right. And one of the things that this, one of the people in this story I was reading was talking about is that with high technology, you're in the air conditioning all day. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not out <laughs> on 110 degrees somewhere west of Pecos. But I mean, almost hate to bring this topic up because I, <laughs> we need oil field workers. And one of the things that I've read about in other places, you know, the LNG, we need more people to work in the LNG industry to meet the demand to send to Europe in light of what's going on there. And keeping pace with that is already a tight race. Yeah, it's a, to be this, already be a challenge this early. Oh my goodness. Because the demand's just going to pick up. There's going to be a winter in Europe. <laughs> There's going to be some difficulties on transportation here in the U.S. as well. So those are the kind of challenges we're going to have, no question. Yeah, so how you solve that, I'm not real sure because, like I said, we've all, you know, we've all been to the grocery store and stood in line, although more, there's more self-checkout going on there. But we've all tried to order a hamburger and, you know, nobody was there to <laughs> see about it. And, you know, with more people coming to the country in whatever situation, there should be workers for <laughs> For something. I don't know how we solve that. Well, and getting them trained, you know, it takes years of experience, you know, to be really successful in the oil and gas business. And I remember a time, you may remember this too, Paul, back in the boom and the bust back in the 80s. You know, we had 4,000 rigs running, you know, in the country. And then it was wound up being down to like zero, you know, it went down fast. Yes. And when it did, I remember I had hired, I was managing for a company, landmen specifically, and there were around, I think, 40 land men. And to, in order to get them a guaranteed room, I had to pay month to month for a year guarantee. Mm-hmm. Or I wouldn't have a room for these any of these men and women that were land men. And so it winds up, I get a call. I remember we had signed a contract. I think we had about two months left on the contract. But it wound up that 
for the particular motel. And it wound up again a call. You need to let go of everybody because it's going going downhill pretty fast. And, you know, I say that to reflect that out of those 40 or so that were them at that time, I don't know one that went back in the oil and gas business. <laughs> yep. And they were so well-trained and really good. I mean, these were top-of-the-line landmen. These were not, you know, just, you know, they were top, top in their profession. I regret that because they had so much to offer. And I wonder sometimes where they all wound up, but I know majority of them did not, if not all, did not go back in the oil and gas business. And so once you train somebody, but they've gone through a bust like that, it's hard to get anybody back. I know I saw those young people that their parents were involved in the oil patch and a lot of them didn't get back or didn't go in at all, I should say, in the oil yes. and gas business. They decided to go different routes. So do you find that right now the workforce, the challenge to get a workforce, you've already talked a little bit about it, but specifically in the oil and gas business, are, you know, we have this image we talked about even in your article you wrote recently where I was interviewed about somewhat of what our message is and is it really coming across. So where are we now, even after the last several weeks and looking ahead, where are we in making sure we get the message right? Well, that's a good question because there's certainly a lot of misinformation out there about blaming the oil and gas industry for stuff that's not. There was the one that came out just a, about a week or so ago that blamed a huge methane cloud over Midland, Odessa for the heat wave that went through the Southwest. I saw I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> something, I, I can't think of anything more outlandish. No, I saw that, than, yeah. Than that, and it was treated as some kind of a fact with not even, you know, good journalism would say, let's get an opposing opinion. And there was <laughs> there was nothing like that. So it's, we just got to keep doing what you and I are doing. I think one thing that's helping mitigate the job crisis is that in some ways automation is, you know, with the remote monitoring and all that, people are driving to the well site less often than the Easter, which that was, there was a whole lot of what they call windshield time there. You weren't really doing anything other than traveling. So now they're only going out there if there's something is known to be wrong or needs to be updated or serviced or something. So that's helping some. I don't know where we'd be <laughs> if it weren't for that. But we just got to keep remembering that there's an agenda out there and that sometimes oil companies are accused of not dealing with the facts. And I guess in truth, all of us, there are facts that you know that I don't like either. But as far as the wholesale not dealing with facts, I think the radical environmentalists, I'm talking about the radical ones. I mean, we all want trees. We all want clean yes, water. Yes, we do. That, that sort of thing. But the, the radicals, I think, have another agenda. Well, to eliminate, it's not a matter of cooperate. And so you eliminate, don't worry about working together. Let's do an oil transition, an energy transition, that is. Uh, oil and gas to other means of energy. And it's not that easy. I mean, when you take 6,000 products that are definitely produced from petrochemical industry alone, you just can't stop overnight. And like you said, is there enough land for wind? Is there enough, you know, it goes on and on like that. You don't get renewables. We don't get the plastic and the solar panels. You got it. You got it. And so when I wrote the book and the monograph on America Needs America's Energy, that was really telling about the pros and cons of all the, as far as the natural resources when it came down to energy. I was trying to make sure that we balanced it out and then could make a, a decent decision on how to transition and how to look at it. And I still believe that, that we've got to have a dialogue and discussion, not just say, we eliminate the oil and gas industry. Let's do it today. Shut it down. 
That's not the way to do business. Never has been the way to do business in any kind of industry. You have to look at the alternatives and look at the way to do things properly and still support the energy efficiency and environmental preservation that we all strive for. And I agree with you, Paul, we all want that. There may be some folks that don't really care, but they're very few and far between. <laughs> Most people really do, when they have children, grandchildren, future generations are dependent on us. I guarantee you, energy efficiency is in the forefront as well. And I've seen the oil and gas industry make great strides over the years. I mean, the cleanups, environmental issues have been really worked on very much on committees that have been established within organizations, between companies. Associations are active. I'm very proud of our oil and gas industry, Paul. I know you are. Yes. And I think that there's so much to offer to go through this energy transition we're, we're seeing but in a good, proper way, not demonizing, but supporting our oil and gas industry. How do you feel more about that as well as any other subject you would like to cover today as we get ready to wrap up? Man, it goes by fast. We'll talk to Paul Wiseman. I mean, it's just like, boom, it's over. But we covered quite a few subjects. We really did, and in good detail as well. But is there something else, a subject that you would want to, as a wrap up, to talk about? Well, no, but I do think that just to follow up that, as you said, all companies are working together. There are consortiums on water recycling. There are consortiums that one is headquartered at Texas Tech, and then there's the Railroad Commission in Texas put together the group of producers to work together on solving the seismicity issue. And I think there are more people, when I do a technology article, all the tech people say, I wish we could share more data across companies. You know, what you tell me about your wells, because I'm not going to drill on your lease. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> I promise. You know, get <laughs> shut down by the Railroad Commission if I did. You sure uh, would, yeah. The old days of claim jumping and all that are pretty much gone. But so sharing of data and the shared goal, I think, is one of the keys to it. We're all in this together. And I don't want to go back to the 60s, you know, sit on the side of the hill and sing, I forget what the Coke commercial was. Anyway, but, you know. I can't either, but I remember what you're talking about, but I can't remember the words. <laughs> I'd like to teach the world. To there say. you go. There you go. Yeah. But so I'm not saying we should do that, but I mean, just reality says we're a community. Let's figure out how to make something that works for everybody, if possible. No question about it. Find a pathway or pathways, develop the roadmap that we can all work together. And what a great way to end conversation is with Paul Wiseman. We've got our challenges ahead of us, but we're going to be developing pathways to build this roadmap so that we can all find ways to have a better future for our young people, for future generations ahead, as far as that goes. And thank you, Paul. Paul Wiseman. You've been listening to the Energy Fellows podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. The future of energy depends on us depends on all of us. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Energy Fellows.